How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 319 of x where uh, still dealing with a little bit of a allergy hell here. Not quite as bad as it was uh, over the past couple of days. I managed to get down to the store and picked up some of that uh, some of that very, very expensive uh, allergy nose spray, which is like the only thing that seems to work for me. I've tried all forms of like Claritins and the, even the stuff you got to get behind the counter and None of that stuff really touches it, but this spray, probably because it's so damn expensive, it actually works. I think maybe it's uh, some mind over matter where I, where I uh, qualify the quality based on the cost. I guess we will uh, keep our fingers crossed and hope for the best here. Uh, today, hopefully, we'll be getting into some, some mailbag content because, uh, honestly, I think we're going to need it. Because, uh, well, the book we're going to discuss today... It's not a not a bad book. There just ain't a whole lot to say about it. We don't have all that much to talk about. There just isn't much to it. Um, and I guess without any further ado, let's uh, let's get into it. And uh, I want to say, last episode, I mistakenly said we'd be discussing X-Men number 7 today. I, I can hardly remember yesterday, so I may have said that. <laughs> I think I just saw the word X-Men and assumed it was going to be number 7, but it, in fact it's not. Uh, today we're going to be taking a look at the Devil's Reign tie-in, uh, Devil's Reign colon X-Men number one, which had a March 2022 cover date. The story's called The Queens of Fear, written by Jerry Duggan with art by Phil Noto. Letters, VCs Corey Petit, designs Tom Muller, edits Amara white Sabolski. cover price four bucks. This one went on sale January 19th of 2022. Now, in Grand X fashion, we open with a mostly blank quote page. Uh, now, this quote comes to us from an unnamed reporter, which talks about how the kingpin is both dangerous and important. So, um, totally not Ben Urich making this uh, statement, right? I mean, it really, it really doesn't matter. Anyway, our story opens in Flashback Land, where the kingpin is having himself a uh, bloody schwitz. Um, now, there are a bunch of KO dudes around him uh, as he sits naked on the floor of the steam room. An assistant enters to inform him that uh, he's found two people that need dealt with this evening. And next thing we know, Electra is slitting a dude's throat. Now, of the two folks that need to be dealt with, this is the more immoral of the two people. Now, the other is a more moral fella, so Fisk cannot abide killing him, at least not yet. And so uh, he'll send in his other... I, I don't know, I guess we can go by the... Uh, by the story title, maybe it's his, his other queen of fear, uh, Emma Frost, to deal with this one. And so we shift scenes to watch Emma mind wave her way into a nightclub so she can get uh, this fella, Mr. Lofek, alone. Now she's here to convince him to change his mind about something. It's, uh, 
it probably doesn't matter what it is. It's just uh, showing that you know she's working for the kingpin, basically. Now, if you recall our recent Lorda Chantal retcon, you'll know that when she and Emma faked her death to get her away from Sebastian Shaw, of course, uh, Chantal's story happened in the backup of uh, Classic X-Men number seven. Uh, now, in order to do this, uh, Emma would turn to the kingpin. For some reason I mean, there's no one else she could have turned to, I guess Uh, And so, she would have to cut a deal And uh, it turns out she'd have to do his bidding when called upon This is Emma, of course, who would have to do that So, let's hop back to the other lady, Electra Now, Electra, of course, she slit this dude's throat Her mark is dead And uh, so she exits the man's apartment onto the fire escape Once out there, she is spotted by a young girl across the alleyway in another apartment and they make eye contact before Electra vanishes. Now, as we read this, it's not entirely clear what's happening, right? Um, we're either supposed to get the impression that Electra killed this young woman <laughs> to leave no witnesses, or she just left, and maybe this is an oversight that would come back and bite her later. Maybe we'll find out toward the end of the issue. From here, we hop into our double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred, and our characters include... Emma Frost, Jean Grey, Captain Krakoa, Polaris, Sink, Rogue, X-23, Kingpin, and Elektra. Now, up to this point, I was a little concerned that this entire issue would take place in flashback land. Uh, I'm happy to see that that's not the case. Because post-credits, we hop over to the present, and we're at the X-Men's treehouse in Seneca Park. Here we've got uh, General Dickhead, a U.S. agent in a Thunderbolts costume, telling our heroes that they gotta cease being heroes. Because, uh... Superheroes are a danger to this world. You may not have heard that before, or maybe you've heard that in, like, a thousand stories before this. So, um, I gotta ask here. I haven't read Devil's Reign yet. I've been stockpiling bits and pieces of it to eventually read and perhaps even include as, like, web-lapsed episodes since Ben Riley's in there, but I haven't cracked them yet. But is Devil's Reign really just this old story again? Like... Do we need another DC Legends? Uh, I mean, I mean, didn't we... Ju- I, I, is Kamala's Law still a thing? Like, do we need a grown-up version of it so soon? Um, I, I don't know if this is a story we need to read again. I, I guess it is. I don't know. Anyway, in case you're unaware, uh, Wilson Fisk, the kingpin, is the current mayor of New York City. And, uh, huh, well, I, I, I don't ever want this show to become, like, current year political... But I have a sneaking suspicion he's supposed to be evocative of, uh, well, someone. Uh, which, I mean, it is current year Marvel, so it probably is uh, supposed to be that way. I suppose we'll just wait and see to see if maybe Deadpool pops his head in here to talk about how Nazism is trendy again. I don't know. Anyway, Fisk makes it so vigilantism is illegal in his fine city, and he's going to be sending out his own security force to, well, enforce that. Uh, and to make this X relevant, he wants that giant gaudy tree yoinked out of Midtown. Nearby, Emma Frost visits Harry Leland at the United Nations to try and brainstorm a way out of this one. Leland informs her that the UN likely won't do anything to help, which, I mean, what else is new? Uh, Emma has a plan all the same, and uh, we'll find out more about it in just a little bit. From here, we hop back to Seneca Park, where U.S. agent slings his far less patriotic shield at the giant tree. I mean, what? Like, what what is he trying to do here? Like, just tossing his shield at a tree? Let's play that out. Like, what's the best outcome for old Walker here? The shield hits the tree? And I mean, mean, that's it, right? That's the only... I don't know. 
Anyway, before it can strike the mighty tree, it's magnetically grabbed by Polaris and chucked many, many miles away. Lorna and Walker then uh, engage in some snark, because that is, uh, <laughs> that is like the only character trait we get, uh, before the latter calls into base in order to order the forces be deployed. Now, the only problem for him is that the tanks and whatnot are being magnetically held in place, so whoops. From here, we hop back to the Oval Office, I mean, Gracie Mansion, where the Kingpin is informed that they're getting a bit of pushback from the X-Men. Fisk recognizes that the Krakoan diplomatic immunity thing could muddy the waters should they try to actually detain the mutants. And pretty much all he wants is for them to relocate. He wants them out of the tree, he wants them out of his city, yada yada yada. Now, his assistant informs him that, well, the X-Men don't even seem willing to do that. Now, Fisk sees this as an opportunity to have all of his points proven for him. You see, if the X-Men choose to resist and get physical with law enforcement, well, that'll just go to show how dangerous a presence they are. From here, we hop inside the treehouse, where Cyclops basically says his version of the same thing. You know, they can't actually resist, because otherwise they'd be proving Fisk's point. He and Jean then also get a little sassy over the Kingpin's political title, and uh, these snark remarks feel, I don't know, like maybe a year, year and a half out of date at this point. And about as subtle as a kick to the crotch, but uh, anyway. Now it's time to plan, and so Jean suggests that perhaps they do give up their Seneca Gardens treehouse. Rogue, who, believe it or not, actually gets a line of dialogue here, wonders what this might mean for their current digs. Because, I mean, they've become quite attached in like the 48 or so hours they've lived there. Now she jokes that it'll become Emma's new Airbnb or something. X-23 suggests they make it a homeless shelter, and Sink agrees... Not because he, you know, he's got the hot pants for X-23 or nothing, but because they're good people, you see. Remember, gang, young people are so much better than us actual adults. Never forget. Anyway, Scott suggests that they head out to face the music, to which he's then reminded that he's got to first change into his Captain Krakoa outfit. So, okay. A, did Scott really forget, like already, that forget that he's Captain Krakoa? And B... Does anybody reading this as a way to keep up with Devil's Reign even have the first inkling on why Captain Krokoa is a thing in the first place? I mean, on that subject, would anyone not following the X-Books but are only following this to keep up with Devil's Reign have any clue or interest as to why Emma's wrapped up with the Kingpin or why she ever was? Would they just assume that when Emma was a bad guy, she did bad guy things with other bad guys? I don't know, I guess those catch-up paragraphs included in the double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred are now, like, actual prerequisites. You have to read those paragraphs in order to understand anything that's to come. I mean, say what you will about Chris Claremont reminding us that Wolverine has, you know, in fact has a razor-sharp adamantium claws on a healing factor every single issue, but I think I'd prefer something like that than just like, hey, read, like, these three lines of text (laughs) on the uh, credits page to even get the first inkling of uh, what it is you're getting yourself into. So, Cyclops caps up, and uh, the team heads outside, and there, Polaris and U.S. Agent are still bumping heads. Until uh, Lorna finds herself electrocuted, or, I guess, electrocuted, by the arrival of the all-new Thunderbolts. Or maybe they're the old Thunderbolts, I really don't know. Uh, The team we get here is comprised of uh, Agony, one of the uh, Skady 800 spider symbiotes running around the city at any given time, Electro, Rhino, and Taskmaster, and, um... I gotta ask, are we, do we still, like, like really love LOL Random Taskmaster? I, did I just imagine that there was a really annoying groundswell around him a few years back? I could be mistaken. 
Anyway, Rogue calls out Rhino for joining the T-Bolts, so I guess he turned good for a bit while I was away. Uh, she says that Remy will be disappointed, uh, so maybe this is out of the Rogue and Gambit series is, is, is that hit a few years back. I haven't yet read them. I do have them, just haven't gotten around to them. Uh, Rhino says that, hey, nothing personal. This is all just business. Lorna then lunges at the T-Bolts while exclaiming that uh, she's not afraid of being thrown in the hole. The hell? Uh, okay, uh, this might be one of the dumber lines of dialogue I've read in, in quite a while. Uh, naturally, the baddies haven't the foggiest clue what it is she's talking about, nor should they. Here's the thing, though. Uh, you know who else doesn't have the foggiest freaking clue what she's talking about? Probably people who are buying this to keep up with the Devil's Reign event, who aren't interested in, in the nuances of the post-Hoxpox X-Men. And I tell you what, with a line like, I'm not afraid of being thrown in a hole, I don't see anybody becoming interested in, uh, in finding out what that means. Anyway, Jean telepathically appeals to Lorna to settle her tea kettle here. Let me get a little bit of annoying banter between Taskmaster and X-23 about the Wolverine name. Uh, Walker then demands Jean allow them access into the treehouse, which, uh, since it's all Krakoan and whatnot, won't be possible. Agent says that he's got Leslie Nope on speed dial, so he'll have the entire Parks Department down here in no time to chop the thing down to kindling. But not so fast, because Emma Frost is here to save the day. Because of course she is. I gotta ask, uh, you know, how did the X-Men ever survive without having her around to repeatedly pull their fat out of the fire? I mean, man, Emma is just the best. I, I should really consider changing the name of this show to better state that. Uh, anyway, Emma's there with a piece of paper from the United Nations who have, for the first time ever, actually done something. You see, the treehouse is now designated as a Krakoan consulate, which... I mean, shouldn't that have been already established? I mean, it's a great big tree that mutants operate out of. Why wasn't this designated an official, like, Krakoan location? Was, was there a storyline reason for this? Did Scott and Jean, like, really want to be, like, independent of Krakoa and really go it alone? I, I honestly can't remember. Anyway, I guess it's a moot point now. And uh, this is all reported in to Fisk, whose hands are tied thanks to the Blue Hats. The Thunderbolts are called off, and uh, yet we still have two more issues of this tie-in to go. We wrap up the issue with the Kingpin digging through Emma Frost's dossier, where he remembers the thing that we saw in the flashback to kick the issue off. Now, it's a cold case regarding a murdered woman, which implicates our White Queen. Now, the photo on the file is of the young woman who witnessed Elektra doing the thing, so I guess she did die then? I don't know. That's where we leave it. We do have a mostly blank quote page where Emma Frost recognizes that when you push the world to change, it often pushes back. Next episode, speaking of pushing back, uh, it's the Marauder's Annual. So, uh, let's get excited. Speaking of excitement, uh, let's talk about this issue here, which, um, uh, first things first, uh, the good. This, uh, felt more like an issue of X-Men than X-Men. Like, we had cast members that don't ever get lines of dialogue, barely even get, like, drawn silently in the background of panels in the X-Men book. They actually got lines of dialogue here. We, we actually heard from Rogue. I, I, I don't remember the last time we did. Um, that's about it, though. That's about the only thing I really liked uh, from this issue, is that it actually felt like an issue. It felt like something happened. Um, I feel like Duggan was handed the Hickman baton here in, in more ways than one. And uh, Duggan, if you've been following the show from the start, 
I've been very, very positive on his work in books like Marauders and in Cable. I've really enjoyed what he brings to the table. But um, here it's almost like he forgot how to write like warm and real feeling characters. And it's as though he's taken to uh, relying on like the Hickman trifecta of characterization. And I mean, it's, it's, there's, there's only three traits. It's aloofness, snark, and badassery. It, it, these characters just don't feel real. They don't feel warm. They feel like they're just there to deliver lines, which, I mean, I guess at the end of the day they are, but they all come across as just like snarky, aloof, sarcastic. It's just not, not appealing to me. Uh, basically, everybody in this book makes me want to punch him in the face, which is not a great thing. I feel like every character here is just out to be like more right than the next. Like, even the attempt that we got in here at an actual conversation felt like a phony, overly scripted social media chat where it's like everybody is just trying to be the smartest person in the room. Everybody's trying to be, trying to be the most enlightened person in the room. It doesn't make for a fun read, and it doesn't make these characters feel real. And honestly, uh, it might sound like a cop-out, but I really don't have all that much more to say about this one. Uh, the art clearly was great. It's Phil Noto. We've uh, so seldom, I don't think we've ever been disappointed by Phil Noto, actually. So the art was was exactly what we expected. Um, gotta say, if I, I haven't read Devil's Reign, as I said, but if Devil's Reign really is just another take on, like, superheroes or outlawed, I don't know that I need that in my life. Um, I've I've heard so many good things about Zosky's run on Daredevil. I enjoyed, I've enjoyed pretty much everything that I've read of Zosky's of late, and uh, I hope there's more to it than that. But um, I guess at least it's not an alien invasion, right? At least as far as I know. <laughs> it could end with uh, some sort of extraterrestrial visitation, right? Uh, <laughs> I probably shouldn't even put that out into the uh, into the ether. But um, yeah, not a whole lot to say. Uh, well, I guess we'll, we'll see how this one uh, goes as we work our way through it, right? But uh, that's all I got to say about the issue. Let's uh, let's hop into the mailbag. I think uh, I think I'm okay to do some letters. So let's hop on in. Let's start with uh, Jeremiah, who's talking about Inferno. He says, "I listened to the last Inferno episode today and really enjoyed myself. Just like whenever I listen to your show, you make me want to read the comic. And today was even more reason for that. I finished Inferno about a week and a half ago and then listened to the podcast episodes about one, two, and three. Today, after listening to the final episode, I I finished it on the commute home and walked in the door and had to reread the fourth issue. I had to see if I missed something and refresh my own memory before writing this note. First of all, I really liked the series. It was a page-turner. It felt a lot like the Hoxpox issues in that every little thing felt like it meant something. Each bit of information felt like a key to the puzzle. It was also enjoyable because as someone who has not followed the story in every book or podcast, I had no problem understanding what was happening from issue to issue. I had enough knowledge of what had gone down in the last couple of years through the Hickman era that I could easily grasp the story, characters, and their motivations. I also thought it was an excellent capper to the Hickman era. Here's my take on the book and why I think it was a good closer. Please bear with me here. The saga started with the ages of Mora, all the timelines, all the deaths, and all the defeats. Over the four issues of Inferno, we were treated to enough flashbacks that even the most casual reader could grasp what was happening. But I think that the flashbacks serve more purpose than to just recap the story. I think they were meant to get us to think about Mora's motivations and plans. The way I look at it, Mora got exactly what she wanted, or at least something pretty damn close. I think she got to the point in her tenth and possibly last life where she had done the best she could. 
The mutants have their own nation and planet. At least I think they still have Mars. Yes, they do. Uh, The evil mutants work and live alongside the good mutants. Generally speaking, they're doing their best to coexist with humanity. They don't ever have to die thanks to the resurrection protocols. All that was left, or at least all she could do now, was let it go to see if they could survive. That is, if Destiny was right about her not having an 11th go-round. This leads me to Destiny Mystique and the whole trying to kill her in the no-place. I don't think Mora was stupid by not getting rid of Destiny's backup right at the beginning. I don't think she was going to try and cure all mutants and then create a world where mutants don't die. As I read and reread the story, I think Mora planned it to happen this way, at least to a certain extent. The way I took it was like this, my thoughts on why she did what she did. I think she told Professor X and Magneto to destroy the Destiny backups, knowing that they would never do that. At best, they would secure them really well, just in case things with Mystique didn't work out. I think she fully expected Mystique to get Destiny brought back somehow. I think she planned for it. I looked at Mora's actions as she was trying to get them to make her human, kill her, and finally end her existence, thereby making this timeline permanent. And I'll pause right there for a moment. I could totally see this point of view, and I think I even posited that um, with all the uh, hints that Mora was you know, carrying around that notebook with the cure in it, I assumed that she was trying to cure herself, not mutants as a whole, but um, uh, cure herself so she would no longer have the power to restart the universe. So basically the tenth life was the one that was going to actually seal the deal, was going to do the thing that she wanted it to do. And she didn't want to screw with that. And she didn't want to risk it being reset all over again. So I thought she was trying to depower herself. I didn't know that she was going to necessarily die. You know, I don't know that she was all that interested in dying. I think she just wanted to remove the power from herself to restart the universe. So I'm not sure that she wanted to be hunted down the way she was. I don't know that she wanted to be shot with the forge gun. I mean, if she wanted to be shot with the forge gun... I don't know how Mystique and Destiny would be a a necessary step in that. In you know, I mean, Forge can do it. We know Forge can do it. He's done it before. And honestly, I don't think it's too unreasonable a request. You know, there might be some second thoughts about uh, demutantifying her from uh, Charles and Eric, but I think at the end of the day, they would realize that that was probably the best case. If this is the the timeline that's going to stick then it's in everybody's, you know, it's the, the needs of the one over the needs of the many. It's in everybody's best interest for Mora to no longer be a mutant. So I think it wouldn't have been difficult to get them on board with demutantifying her. So I feel, you know, I've mentioned the old Dagwood sandwich a few times in the uh, over the course of the uh, years we've been covering these books. It just feels like we're adding all these extra unnecessary layers to get where we need to be, where, I mean, the... The path from A to B can be so much simpler, so much more linear. I don't know, it feels like we're just muddy in waters. Then, of course, if we take into account the events in Zlato, Zlato, or the ex-deaths anyway, I feel like that kind of takes the wind out of the sails of a lot of our theories. They're, they're really changing things up, and uh, part of it feels like lack of communication between creators, and part of it feels like just uh, purposely skewing a different direction. Back to Jeremiah, he continues, uh, Her speech as she was tied up about curing mutants as children, preventing them from ever becoming mutants in the first place, was to push Mystique and Destiny's buttons, just like it did back in her third life. I think she was goading them into using Forge's gun. I took it this way because I think you're right. If she really wanted to save mutants by making them human, then why be a catalyst for building a mutant paradise where mutants can be resurrected? 
Now that she's human, she can die, and her seemingly endless existence can finally come to an end. She can let this timeline go to succeed or not on its own merits. She's got to be tired of trying and dying by now, right? And yeah, I can I can see where you're coming from, but I feel like um, Hickman was really trying hard to paint her as a betrayer in this series. That might just be uh, me accepting things at face value and not thinking um, for different angles, but the entire... Uh, the entire premise is about her betraying her own people. And, I mean, that that also continues into uh, the ex-deaths of Wolverine. So, I really don't know. I, it's, I, you know, it's it's a part of that problem with analysis and also the sort of kind of knowledge that there is some sort of creative turmoil behind the scenes where, you know, we're having people leave, we're having people come in. It's It's just really hard to take things at face value or... It's hard to accept things as being representative of the original vision of the, uh, of the entire endeavor up to this point. Jeremiah continues. Finally, I really like the things that Destiny says when Doug shows up, and she talks about the future not being clear and everything branching off. It's a nice way for Hickman to say he doesn't know what happens next, and how that's going to be left to the new creators and stories. <laughs> and it's, it's funny you mention that, because um, I... I in reading uh, Inferno number four, uh, the last page of that is it's about as subtle as a shotgun in that um, it paints the Quiet Council as being like in a sort of gilded cage here. They're in a prison of their own making. They're never going to, you know, be to be continued forever. We're, we're going to be meeting forevermore. I took that and I didn't mention this during the episode because it's just me. Being you know a, a, a goof, but I I took that as some sort of meta <laughs> commentary from Hickman, like, hey, you know, I really wanted to end this Krakoa thing, and Marvel won't let us do it, so yeah, everybody's trapped. <laughs> we're we're stuck here. Krakoa as a new status quo is a is a prison because it was supposed to come and go, and that was the original vision. I mean, meta commentary, imagined or otherwise, is uh, is always kind of interesting to play around with. Jeremiah continues, I like this theory because then Hickman gets what he wanted, or at least what I felt like he was trying to do when he set out with this project. With the Mora timelines, we get all that came before, from things like Roy Thomas's boring, silly, and fun Silver Age, Claremont and Burns' years and years of drama and fan-favorite stories, to the ever-evolving and multiplying times from Jim Lee, Liefeld, and all those that followed to matter. Everything that happened is in play because it could have just occurred in one of those nine other timelines. Well, I'm pretty sure everything happened in the 10th timeline, I think, because that was my big bugbear when I came into this uh, with, uh, you know, the first few episodes. I wondered and I worried that uh, we were retconning things out and uh, taking inconvenient bits of X-Men history and just relocating them to different lives as, sure, they happened, right? They happened, but they don't matter. And uh, people kind of hit me back with, no, no, everything happened in the 10th life. You know, everything from X-Men number one in 1963 till now is Mora's Tenth Life. Whether or not that changes uh, during Zlato's Lato, that is a possibility, because, I mean, it is kind of weird the way that story is being told up to this point. I mean, I've only read two issues of it, but it's very bizarre. But as far as uh, we sit now, everything happened. So, I mean, that's uh, that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. Uh, Jeremiah continues. Also, this era gets to mean something, at least until the next reboot or editorial decision comes along. 
and the stories that come out next get to build on as much or as little of what Hickman set up as the new creative teams choose to do. Now, of course, I could be looking at this with rose-colored glasses, and maybe I don't fully grasp everything that happened because I have not read all the books in the line, but I'm not sure that that matters. One of the things I like about what Hickman did is that he didn't spell it out for us. There's, a left, there's enough left for our imagination so we can talk about it, debate theories, and join in on a conversation with each other just like you've been getting us to do with the podcast. Anyway, those are my two cents. I'm looking forward to hearing what you think about my take on the story. Thanks, and I'll be listening. P.S. When are we going to get more essential episodes? The professor's dead, and I want to hear about what happens next. Well, let's uh, let's go point by point. Um, you know, I think I think the Hickman run here may or may not have ended the way it was supposed to. May have, or at least uh, it may have veered from the original vision or the initial pitch. Right? Um, I don't know that that matters overall because, like you said here. It does give us so much to speculate. It does give us a whole lot we can talk about and play with. And I think on the strength of the debates that we can have uh, with the information that we're given and the stories that we're told, that this run will stand alongside seminal runs in this uh, in this franchise. Now, whether or not it's been everybody's cup of tea, right? Um, I don't think any of us can argue that it tried something. And, um, you know, comics can, comics and comics fans get a lot of guff for playing things safe and, like, refusing change, you know, refusing and fighting back against new status quos or uh, just new, new bits of history, new takes, new visions. And so I feel like we truly have to acknowledge and appreciate when a uh, run on a book goes the entire other direction. Uh, but for better or for worse, I mean, mileage may vary across the board here, but the Krakoan era fundamentally changed things. Uh, it added all these interesting layers to... I mean, it's going to... With all the revelations on Mora alone, there are some stories that were written over the past 50, 60 years that we'll never be able to look at the same way again. And again, that could be a good thing to some people, it could be a bad thing to some people, but it tried something. And it's giving us so much to talk about, and it's making us care again, which this is something I've talked about from time to time as we've gone through various stories, and we've talked about things like continuity errors and just mistakes in general, where I would talk about, you know, being on Usenet back in the 90s, and anytime there'd be like a t- even the tiniest, most minuscule mistake in a comic book, you could guarantee that there were people talking about it and trying to find a way to make it work. It's like, well, this happened on page three, but it should have never happened because of this, this, and this, but let's try to massage it into continuity. Let's try to, I mean, you know, for lack of a better term, we're trying to no-prize things. We're trying to make things fit. We're trying to justify mistakes. And I complained that mistakes became so frequent that we gave up. We stopped questioning everything. It's just like, oh, okay, well, Wolverine is in 15 places at once. Sure, we, we, who cares? <laughs> you know, oh, this person died last issue, but they're back now. Sure, it's comics, who cares? We stopped caring. We stopped trying to make stories work and fit. We stopped having conversations outside of just being passive-aggressive and being like, yeah, nobody cares. <laughs> but with this run... We're actually starting to have those conversations again. And sure, there have been mistakes. 
you know, I mean, Petrus way. I mean, there have been mistakes that have caused us just to throw our hands up in the air and be like, who cares? You know, we're not even going to bother. But for the most part, and I can only speak for our very small circle here, not the not the clad handers and the 10 out of 10 folks, but we are actually having these conversations now. We're trying to make things work. We're trying to see where things fit. We're trying to see if things make sense. And if they don't make sense, we're trying to see if we can make them make sense, which I feel like at the end of the day, that's a success uh, for any sort of creative endeavor. If you can get people to talk, if you can get people to invest, if you can get people to care, then you've won. And um, like I said, this run might not have been everybody's cup of tea, but it was successful in that it got us talking and it got us caring and it got us invested. And it's even giving us like a new a new lens to view older stories through. And uh, there's a lot to be said for that. Now, as for uh, Jeremiah's question about the essentials, uh, soon, soon. I hope those will come back soon because I, I very much miss doing them. Um, I might actually push uh, Weblapsed off a bit to uh, to get us back into the essentials because it feels like it's been forever since I've done one of those. And yeah, we we left off at a at a pretty uh, pretty scary time for our heroes here. Professor X is dead. And what happens next? And, and we're about to enter like a very weird, weird era too with, I want to say our next issue or maybe two issues from now is Angel hanging out with like the, the Red Raven from the Golden Age for, for some reason. So it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting time. And um, yeah, I wasn't expecting to fall so far. It's so weird that I do a show every single day and I still feel like I'm falling behind. Um, uh, if you've been following along, you'll know that I did take about a week and a half off in January when we when we lost our dog, and I honestly didn't see that setting us back the way it did, and it it did it did. So we'll get to the essentials, hopefully within the next uh, couple of weeks, because we do have um, boy, I think we have like four or five issues left for uh, for this month's shipment to get to. So. We will get there, I, I promise. I, I'm not giving up on the essentials. That is a very, very fun project. I love all the back matter we discuss. It's just a really good time, and uh, and yes, I, I definitely miss it. And I'm really happy to hear that uh, other folks miss it too. That means uh, a whole lot to me. But uh, thank you so much for writing in your thoughts on Inferno, Jeremiah. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing everybody's thoughts on Inferno. Uh, any sort of Hickman run post-mortem you want to send my way, I would love to discuss it. So uh, thank you so much. Let's pop over to Peter, who's talking about Hellions number 18. Now he says, Scalp Hunter was the only reason I was interested in this book when it first started. I've been hoping for years that another writer was going to follow up on a scene a bit after the end of Manifest Destiny where the X-Men were getting revenge, and I think it was Nightcrawler who tracked Greycrow down only to find him working as a short-order cook, trying to put all of the supervillain and sinister stuff behind him. Usually when there's a scene, or sometimes even a whole miniseries, dedicated to a character making a change, it's ignored, and we see the character right back to doing what it was they've always done. But I always liked that scene and hoped subsequent writers liked it too. And you're right, um, that was in, uh, I think that was Divided We Stand. And in that story, Nightcrawler not only found him as a short order cook, but he also converted him to Christianity. So, um... Yeah, I don't know that that was picked up on again. Uh, you, you're totally right, though. We get these miniseries that are often just ignored at the end of the day, which really sucks. It sucks for continuity reasons. I mean, it, we can go back to what I just said uh, during Jeremiah's email here, where it got to be that time where we'd see 
uh, contradictory continuity and we would just throw our hands up and be like, sure, <laughs> it never happened. Okay, fine. Oh, the juggernaut was a villain and now he's a hero and now nah, he's a villain again. Screw it. You know, I, we get stories like that all the time, unfortunately. But um, that Grey Crow and Nightcrawler story was very interesting and I remember... I remember being fondly received when it hit. I remember people actually talking about that one. It might be the only story from that entire issue or, or miniseries, whatever it was, that anybody really talked about. And while none of us can say how much of that actually stuck, it is nice to get a series that takes a more heroic uh, John Grey Crow into, into account here and has him... You know, as we said during many of our discussions of Hellions, um, that he was like the the conscience, the the compass, the moral compass of that team somehow, which sounds pretty outlandish to say, but it was totally the case. Thank you for writing in on that one, Peter. Uh, we will wrap things up with uh, Evan talking about X Men number six. And he says, "Here's my one and a half cents on why returning from death matters in this situation, even if it is in the fantastical Marvel universe." It may be worthless if I've made this point before, but most deaths and resurrections in the Marvel Universe are specific events. Hard to reproduce. This ain't the Flash's origin, after all. Captain America wasn't just shot, he was unmoored in time, or something like that. Basically what happened to Batman in Final Crisis, right? Some folks didn't really die. Some, like the Hulk of late, can't. Some had to be yoinked out of heaven on a pirate ship or saved by a creator who looks a lot like Jack Kirby. But now, the mutants have a get-out-of-death-free card that, that can work for anybody. It's not just if you have the right powers or the right circumstances. We know there was more to Siren's deaths than just drunk flying, but folks presume that's how she died, and they brought her back because they could. It's reproducible. And when folks find out about that, they're going to say, why not my loved one? Also, while death and resurrection shouldn't shock folks in the Marvel Universe, we readers know a lot more of them than the general public. So people know probably about half and believe fewer than that. And, well, your point is well taken, but I still feel like this story only works in a vacuum because, like, we have Cyclops' death being the focal point here, right? I don't know how we go from point A, Cyclops is, was dead, now he's back, to point B, mutants can cure death. Mutants have beaten death. And we have Ben Urich, like the, the only investigative journalist in the Marvel Universe, who is hyper-focused on Scott for some reason. We've had heroes die. I mean, that's something we've talked about. Heroes die all the damn time, too often. Where was Ben Urich then? Why wasn't he sniffing around then? For him to be so oddly interested in Cyclops totally dismisses the rest of the Marvel Universe. And I think you have a great point about the readers knowing far more than the general public in Marvel does because, of course, our minds go directly to that. You know, Cyclops is back. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, the resurrection protocols. Okay. Um, well, that's point A, point B. Okay. This is going to be a, a slam dunk for Ben Urich. But it discounts the, I guess for lack of a better term, the realities of any universe where there are so many different variables and so many different things to take into account. It's like our minds make the connection, but if everybody else starts making that connection, it becomes a problem. I mean, maybe that's the point, but I, I'm just not feeling it as an organic story. It feels like it depends a whole lot on what we know as readers or rather than logical deduction in, inside the Marvel Universe. It, it kind of reminds me, it's not really anything like this, but it sort of reminds me of like when someone 
in a Batman comic will make a joke about how Batman has these young wards who always wind up dead. You know, and it's like, sure, we as readers know that, and sure, we as readers kind of make fun of that from time to time, but when someone inside the universe mentions it, it's like, wait a sec, okay, the jig is up. If people take notice of this, then there's absolutely no way anybody lets him operate the way he operates. You know, it's... I hate the word problematic, but... I feel like it kind of is. If we want to, if we're looking at like longevity and telling these stories uh, forever, it's probably best if they maybe steer away from being quite so self-aware. Now we are just two episodes away from covering X Men number seven, so um, so hopefully maybe I'll maybe I'll feel differently then. I mean, who knows? We will uh, we will uh, take it as it comes. But thank you so much for writing in on that one, Evan. Just a couple of brief asides before we cut out of here. Um, over on the Facebook group, that's uh, 90s X-Men on Facebook, our friend Jesse D. Young posed a question which um, blew my mind, honestly. Uh, when, I read, <laughs> when I read it, it was just like, wait a second, how come I didn't notice this? Now, we talk about Mora and how when she dies, everything resets, right? That's been the gimmick. And he asked a question about, like, well, what happened during the Age of Apocalypse? What happened during the 2015 Secret Wars when worlds ended? You know, you gotta assume when the Age of Apocalypse happened and the world ended, Mora died with that, right? She would have passed just like everyone else did. Same with uh, Secret Wars to an extent. So, you know, rather than butcher it, let me just read what he wrote here. He says, I have a topic I want to talk about either here or on the podcast. Mora's death, or supposed death, and why they did not jumpstart the 616 Marvel Universe. There have been times where the 616 Universe was destroyed. Two examples that come immediately to mind are the Age of Apocalypse and the 2015 Secret Wars. Leading up to these stories, the Universe as we knew it, including practically everyone in them, were killed. This would include Mora. If Mora is killed, then it would reset things back to the day she was conceived, or that's what we were brought to believe. So, why wasn't it? Possibly there were some things powerful enough to override Ms. X's mutant power. Whether it was a clashing of universe or the Emkron crystal or killing your father before you were born, there may be other ways to stop a reboot at Mora's death. Maybe, she's a- maybe she was able to sneak into a lifeboat spacecraft and was never seen, or she was mysteriously jumping back in time to prevent her death. I don't know, and chances are no one has thought about it but me. Are there other times the 616 universe was destroyed that I'm missing? I'm sure that there were. What ifs in the end and future stories wouldn't count because they're alternate universes, but what does everyone think? And, well, to be completely honest, uh, I don't know what to think just yet. <laughs> um, I, uh, I feel like there's a lot to think about there, a lot to talk about, a lot to uh, kind of throw around, and I want to put that question, uh, Jesse's question out there, so anyone who might have some theories, anybody who might have a way we can no-prize this, I want to hear from you. I want to have these discussions because it's... I I can't believe we've been doing this for two and a half years now and I've never seen this question posed before. So uh, a hat's off and a dag nabbit to Jesse (laughs) for causing my my pea-sized brain to explode. But uh, yeah, I'd love to hear people's thoughts on that. Finally, and this will be a very, very brief bit here... um, during my uh, Inferno Number no. 4 episode, I made a comment at the end about how I received a weird, unsolicited direct message on Twitter back in the day, pretty much telling me that uh, the X-Men comics commentary community were never, ever going to let me in. And uh, that is 
since proven to be absolutely true. Uh, I received a lot of wonderfully supportive feedback in regard to that. Uh, I'm not going to get too specific or go too deep into it. Uh, I just wanted to uh, say on the air uh, a thank you to uh, to the folks who wrote in to uh, say nice things and to uh, assure me that uh, this show, as uh, teeny and tiny as it is, uh, actually uh, actually matters and, and has a place. So sincerely, from the the bottom of my heart, thank you all so much for for that because. Uh, Something I really needed to hear, so thank you. Um, but I think that's going to do it for today. I can't believe I made it this far with uh, all of my allergy-riddled um, faculties intact. So um, that's a good thing. <laughs> but uh, uh, if anybody out there would like to get a hold of me to answer any of the questions we posed today, or just to say hello or say anything, I suppose, please feel free to do so. You can find me several different ways. Find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. Instagram at 90sxmen. Uh, you could shoot an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com or call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, Chris is on infiniteearths.com. The Facebook group is 90sxmen. Of course, the archives are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com or anywhere you find noise on the internet. And finally, there is the Patreon. That is patreon.com slash xlapsed. But uh, that will do it for today. I would like to thank you all so much for choosing to spend a little bit of your day with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Oh